It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball on a uh, Thursday morning slash afternoon. I guess we're recording this morning for me. It's afternoon for you. Hello, gents. My name is Tyler Ron, Sam Dykstra, and Benjamin Hill in New York City. What's going on, you guys? Hello. Tyler, how are, how are you? You actually have come recently from a minor league location. I have. For the oh. first time since uh, April of 2019, I went to a, a minor league ballpark this past weekend, got a chance to catch a couple of games in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I saw the uh, the Ice Topes play on Friday, and then I saw the Albuquerque Dukes play uh, the Topes in their throwback uniforms on Saturday, which was very cool. I um, now own, I think, six Albuquerque Ice Topes hats, which is – Probably overkill. Uh, Tobes hats, a mariachi's hat, their their Copa identity, uh, a couple of Duke's hats, and now I have a green chili cheeseburgers hat also, uh, and it was fantastic. But man, it was great. Like being back in a minor league ballpark was, uh, yeah, it was it was crazy how long it has been, and it felt very good to be back. Yeah, and, and what stood out about being back in Albuquerque specifically? You know, um, just how normal it felt um you know with with fans there with full capacity all of that there was a fireworks night on saturday just being back in the surroundings of a minor league ballpark where orbit the mascot is there and they're still doing the you know the taco races uh between the fifth and sixth inning i want to say like it it really felt i think at the beginning of the season we all kind of expected these sort of watered down versions of sporting events um and for you know a time when it felt like all right we're really coming out of this pandemic uh it seems like we started to get a lot of that good stuff back and thankfully fortunately and in most places it is still that way um but that's what was so cool was it just felt like oh yeah this is the the minor league atmosphere that i remember and and missed so very much and that was very cool it did feel strange uh you know that it had been two and a half years since i had been to a game essentially uh but i was very glad to break that streak because it uh it was way too long so so what was the final tally on how many green chili food items you ended up having i believe that of all of the meals that i had i think only one of them was non-grill and green chili inclusive but now i can't even remember which one that was so i had a green chili cheeseburger on the way down uh and then a breakfast burrito the following morning which of course is loaded up with with green chili and then uh Oh, I know what it was. I had, uh, I think it's called Dion's Pizza, which is at the ballpark in Albuquerque. Although, nope, now that I think about it, I did have a slice that also had green chilies on it. Um, so, yeah, maybe every meal that I had actually was green chili <laughs> inclusive because then it was breakfast burritos the next day, along with a cinnamon roll from the this place called Frontier, which is pretty legendary. Wait, the cinnamon roll had green chili on it? No, no, no. I'm just saying. Oh, cinnamon okay. roll. oh you said food items. Yeah, true. Okay, so the cinnamon roll does not count. And my slice of pepperoni only pizza does not count. Um, but the meals, all of my meals had at least. Okay. All right. I got concerned though, when you were just like, yeah, there was the breakfast burrito, (laughs) green chili, I'd probably eat a green chili cinnamon roll. To be honest, I'd give it a shot. It's gotta be out there somewhere. A little little spicy, a little sweet. 
uh, yeah, I'm into it. Ben, how much green chili have you consumed uh, in your your travels to Albuquerque? You've been there a couple times. Yeah, I've been there a couple times. Not a ton. Um, but one thing, and this is an unfortunate, you know, COVID restriction right now. There's no condiment bars. Yeah. Um, at ballparks. And Albuquerque was the only place I've ever been to. And fittingly, uh, being Albuquerque in New Mexico and home of the green chili, they had green chilies at the condiment bar just alongside, you know, ketchup, mustard, relish, mayo. They had a thing of green chilies. So you could literally top anything with with green chilies. So I had some green chilies at the ballpark. Um, and uh, I bought like some weird green chili stuff at like gas stations and just yeah. around the way. I think I got some like green chili, like peanut brittle. Oh, interesting. Point. Yeah, a sweet and savory mix. Um, but it's good. I like the heat. I like the, and I like regional foods and, it's fantastic. and I'm all about it. And here's hoping that condiment bars return sometime in the near future and, and in Albuquerque. Uh, green chilies as a condiment hope they return very soon that's the step i want to see come next is just like what's the craziest condiment you can put in your stand when we get those yeah and i and i will say they did have condiment stands uh in albuquerque i did not pass one that had green chilies but i did and now oddly ironically i'm remembering the one thing that i ate that was not green chili inclusive i got nachos there but they were like barbecue nachos so it was like chips Nacho cheese, pulled pork, and then barbecue sauce on top. Uh, but they did have jalapenos. The jalapenos were very good to add to it. Um, but yeah, I would have loaded it up with green chili had it been there. And they were probably like, "We got to get this away from this dude. He's gonna, he's gonna." <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, I did not down. realize that condiment bars had returned in any way, shape, or form. It turned out they have, and then the green chilies are missing. The plot thickens. This is really the whole, uh, <laughs> a whole investigative report. But I this is going to be. We're going to do a a serial style podcast about where the green chilies went to the condiment bar in Albuquerque. I'm just saying we're we're <laughs> coming up on a long off season ahead. People are going to be more creative than ever. That is true. Do like get creative with the condiment bars. That is true. I'm I'm pretty certain that Kevin Collins, the Albuquerque PR guy, listens to the show every week. Uh, he would probably give us some some insight into what's going on. They did not anymore have the tumbleweed burger, which was the burger that they had that had like ghost pepper cotton candy on it. Um, and I was going to try it. And then I, I will say I was not depressed that it was no longer offered because I, I know it would have been like, oh, this is interesting. And then knowing me, I would have eaten the entire thing. And then I would have been like miserable later. Like, why did I have a burger with cotton candy on? So I was okay with that. It did look pretty good. The chef actually who created that burger, Ryan Curry, moved along to rocket city trash pandas right he's now uh doing that job and i think when he left um i don't think his successor clearly decided not to note to uh not to proceed with the tumbleweed burger with like yeah like a red chili infused uh cotton candy on yeah yeah and i think it was ghost pepper cheese maybe or a ghost pepper bun or something like that so it's like very spicy and also sweet and a burger (laughs) How many things are you going to mad lib into this burger? <laughs> <laughs> what is the grab bag of food things that you can toss on as a burger? Um, well, it's uh, it was a very fun weekend. And uh, Ben's actually got another weekend coming up at a minor league ballpark as we uh, thank you, of course, for tuning in on this week's episode of the show before the show. You can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. You can give us a rating and a review. And, uh, of course, only if it's five stars and uh, a subscription. And let us know what you think of the show. We are uh, so delighted that we are back in a world where we can visit minor league ballparks and stuff. And Ben is headed to Sam's neck of the woods, Sam's ancestral neck of the woods uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts. You are headed to see the Woo Sox this weekend. That is correct. Polar Park. I will be there Friday. Oh, whoa. I hadn't even thought about that. Friday, August 13th. 
Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. Ooh. I'll be there Friday the 13th and Saturday the 14th, which is, I remember from my youth, Saturday the 14th was a, a um, series of Friday the 13th comedic horror movies. Oh, okay. There was a whole Saturday the 14th franchise that ah. made fun of horror movie slasher tropes. Anyway, I will be there <laughs> on Friday the 13th, Saturday the 14th. Uh, the Woo Sox, Polar Park. Um, you know, as I mentioned in this podcast before, you know, I'm in a new era of my life, uh, working part time right now and uh, staying home with my son the other days. So I'm kind of all over the place, switching back and forth between home and work and this, that and the other. But, uh, you know, I made it to Fredericksburg a couple weekends ago, making it to Polar Park uh, this weekend, just trying to do what I can um, while there's still a season to be had to hit a few of these new ballparks. And uh, I'm looking forward to this one. I mean, Sam's an expert on the uh, well, he's been to the ballpark and an expert on the area. So uh, I will do my best to uh, do him proud, which is basically my um, MO in everything I do. You know, WWSD is uh, my <laughs> motto. No, WWSDD. I was going to say, yes. yeah, you're missing another <laughs> initial in there. Sam, but, if you, we've, we're doing the, the ballpark guides and we're going to talk a little bit more about the ballpark guide project, of course, like as the offseason gets here and all that. But if you were to give somebody a preview of Worcester, you've been to Worcester a few times now and checked out Polar Park. If you were to tell somebody like, all right, here's what you got to do, food places you got to go, things you got to see at the park, give us a rundown. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's going to stand out, and that's the great thing about Ben going, is that Ben doesn't is going to be looking for like local touches in the way that I was. I mean, the the Worcester Wall and right is is immediately going to stand out to anybody who goes there. Uh, I, obviously, they're trying to evoke something of a green monster there, but it's also because of similar to what we saw in Hartford, where it was built into a city block. You only have a limited amount of space, um, so they put up the wall essentially to help with home runs. It seems to have worked pretty well. I think that that right field area is a place where I know a lot of folks that have been to games, love to hang out. Um, it's, that's been a huge deal. Uh, also, Ben, how do you feel about seltzer? Are you a seltzer person? I've never really seen you drink seltzer much around the office. No, I don't drink it around the office. I like it fine. I'll have a seltzer on occasion and occasionally a, a hard seltzer such as it were, but I don't seek them out particularly. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm. it's funny. I, I, I grew up around polar seltzer. And I didn't grow up with it either. I'm not a huge seltzer person, but it's very easy to find around the ballpark. Polar made sure its imprint is is at the stadium. Um, I'm trying to think of what I've eaten there in the past. Um, yeah, there's not really much there. I mean, I don't think you're much of a coffee person either, right? I'll drink it. Same with seltzer. I drink yeah, it, but I will I'm not, say I'm not a... Duncan tastes better at home. <laughs> so, so if you want the, the it's it's like Guinness in Ireland. It it does taste better at home. Um, so get that around the ballpark as well. But I, what I'm most interested in is, is Ben is not somebody from the area. He's going to look at it through completely different eyes than I did and through the eyes of, okay, this is another minor league stadium. How's it, how does it compare uh, across the country? We were talking to folks from the IL East just last week, and when I was wearing my Worcester Red Sox hat, they were like, oh, we've heard great things about that stadium. It seems to have come along well. well and. Um, their teams have played there and given it good reviews. So excited to see what Ben uh, can bring back in, in the stories. What are you looking forward to most, like in your research? Um, it seems like an interesting ballpark. I mean, there's obviously a, an interesting story behind it because a long and arduous and often controversial road uh, from the transition of that franchise from Pawtucket to Worcester. Um, and Worcester was not the original choice when the new ownership group uh, bought the team and they wanted to move to Providence. So, um, I think it'll be interesting to see just after all this time and all this uh, back and forth and a lot of kind of soap opera elements. Okay, here's what it all turned into, uh, you know, 
does this uh, make sense? <laughs> and, and, and uh, uh, is it a good fit? And uh, yeah, I've never been in, in Worcester at all before. So just interesting to see that city, interesting to see architecturally how the ballpark blends into the city, you know, learn as much as I can in a short amount of time to understand some of the references. Um, I have heard that there is a lot of like food and drink, kind of like Sam alluded to, like in the ballpark as well, that uh, ties into local areas. So to me, it's always a crash course in local history uh, that I enjoy. So that's uh, that's the main thing for me, for sure. And uh, from there, it's just all the little things you can't quite plan for. Uh, I just hope to be open and available and uh, meet people and see what leads to what. It's coming up this weekend, and something that's coming up tonight that's very cool in uh, in the baseball world. We're recording on Thursday. The Field of Dreams game is tonight. The New York Yankees and the Chicago White Sox will uh, have a baseball matchup under the lights, not on the actual Field of Dreams site. I feel like that was kind of a misconception for a lot of people, my mom especially. But she doesn't know how to download podcasts, so I'm not really issuing the correction on here for her. But it is on a field kind of adjacent to the actual film site, uh, at the Field of Dreams um, movie site in Dyersville, Iowa. And uh, I'm so excited for this game tonight. It is very rare that I am this excited for a regular season matchup, uh, especially between the Yankees and White Sox, two teams that I don't uh, follow super closely. But tonight is going to be super cool. And we were talking earlier today about if we could have a selection for a minor league game of this kind, a special location, um, something that, you know, inspires people in its own way uh, for a minor league matchup what would we choose? And we've seen minor league teams play, you know, ahead of the little league classic. And, um, you know, there was a home run derby on an aircraft carrier for the California league several years ago. Um, there's been very cool events kind of in this vein, but obviously nothing on this scale. If you guys had a choice of a place where uh, minor league teams could match up and, and have an event kind of like the field of dreams game, what would you go with? Sam, would you like to go first? Yeah. Should I uh, take this one? Well, yeah, you go first, Pat. Okay, I will go first. Um, yeah, there are some precedents somewhat for this, obviously, with the Rickwood Classic, um, you know, uh, that the Birmingham Barons have done every year. Rickwood was that team's home from 1910 through 1986. And going back once a year to play a game in a classic ballpark, I think that's a model. If we're putting aside, you know, feasibility right now, I think that's a really cool uh, thing to think about. Uh, and, uh, you know, for our own dreaming, uh, dreaming and scheming, what are older ballparks that would be fun to see a game in now? Um, so I, I think of uh, Engel Stadium in Chattanooga, which I was fortunate enough to visit, not on my most recent trip to Chattanooga, but the two times prior to that. And that is a ballpark kind of like Rickwood, you know, that operated you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s for decades and decades and decades. And uh, in recent years, um, there were efforts to, you know, to revitalize it and they never got far enough to really bring it up to professional uh, standards. But I would love to see uh, that stadium, you know, truly refurbished and uh, played a, a real minor league game played in that ballpark a la Rickwood Field with the throwback uniforms and um, tributes to, you know, people from that ballpark's history. You know, the owner of the team was Joseph uh, Engel, uh, the ballpark is named for him, and he was a real, you know, P.T. Barnum kind of guy, you know, 
whatever live elephants at the ballpark or giving away a house. And, uh, you know, he was famously behind the, uh, the Jack, Jackie Mitchell pitching in the exhibition game against the Yankees and striking out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. So a lot of history, a lot of kind of over the top carnivalesque uh, ballpark history there. So I would love to see that place come alive in uh, the year 20, you know, in the present day and to celebrate that history, but also see baseball there now. Uh, this is, I think, kind of the direction I would go um, in a fanciful, but not completely fanciful type direction. I know uh, if we really start thinking about it, you come up with all kinds of crazy scenarios. I mean, I'd say build a ballpark on the moon, but yeah, one thing at a time. We already have that in Coors Field. Uh, true. Coors! Uh, or maybe I guess Albuquerque would be the minor league version of that. Um, I, the one that stands out to me is if the if we're doing Field of Dreams and we're trying to allude to cinematic history, what is the greatest minor league movie of all time? Um, it's probably Bull Durham. I, I'm not going to go. Air Bud, seventh inning fetch. Is that a minor league <laughs> I don't movie? even know if that's a minor league movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've never seen any of the Air Buds. I don't know. Okay. I, I mean, it could be. Uh, you wouldn't. It's entirely wouldn't possible. Uh, but Bull Durham obviously exists. We were talking about this before the show started as well. They currently play in the DBAP, the Durham Bulls Athletic Park. They used to play in the Durham Athletic Park, the DAP. Uh, that still exists, I believe. So why not play a game there? You know, like they recently dressed up as the Durham Lollygaggers. They've done that this season, alluding to the movie itself. Uh, it wouldn't be as cool as Field of Dreams. I get it. Coming out of the corn is a whole big thing. And that, that's a reference in itself. You're, you're not really going to have that unless every like meeting on the mound is mic'd up and guys are talking about like wedding gifts and stuff. That would actually be. Candlesticks always make a nice gift. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do something like that, like just mic everybody up so you can hear everything and um, even hear the catcher talk to the batter or something like that. I don't know. It, maybe there would be ways to do it. It's probably never going to happen in that way. But even in just a fun way to have it in the old stadium, have guys aim for the bowl like they do now at the DBAP, but give it a little bit of a retro feel. Uh, another Kevin Costner movie. I guess we could invite him down, have him be part of the thing all over again. Uh, that's, that's what stands out to me. I mean, there've been some cool ones over the years. I don't know how this would work in terms of a game, but we've seen home run derbies on air, airline carriers, airport, uh, aircraft, aircraft carriers, you know, air carriers, uh, aircraft carriers. Could that work? That would be kind of neat. Something with a cool background, uh, maybe something in a, in a national park. I know that would require stripping down some of the parks. Maybe that wouldn't work, but give it that natural feel that you're getting in Iowa. I don't know. There's a bunch of ideas. And, and if anybody out there is listening and wants us to sit around for a powwow and, and brainstorm some of these, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. I think uh, we would all gladly take that. I've got two suggestions. Um, one is uh, in the Detroit area, Hamtramck stadium, which is one of, I think five remaining Negro league stadiums in the country recently was um, approved with, with financial backing and all of that for a full restoration. Um, and I think that would be amazing to bring baseball back to a place where uh, it hosted as many as 17 future baseball hall of fame inductees um, over its original baseball life. And kind of, it was a, a ballpark that looked as though it would be lost to history for some time and now has been saved and uh, is on the road back to being a, a useful ballpark for the community and all of that. Um, so Hamtramck Stadium, I think would be very cool. If we're going 
kind of in the mold of, uh, you know, when Major League Baseball put a, a ballpark on a, a military base a few years ago or building a temporary ballpark, uh, you know, in Iowa for the Field of Dreams. I think a place where it'd be very cool, even though this is an apocryphal tale, but one of the tales of baseball's founding is that Abner Doubleday pioneered the game playing on the shores of Lake Otsego, which is uh, in Cooperstown, uh, or Cooperstown, I should say, borders it. I don't know, it'd be kind of cool to, like, build a ballpark on the shores of that lake and play in the the home of the baseball hall of fame and all. I know they have a stadium there. I know that double day field is a thing that exists, uh, but that'd be kind of cool. If you were going to do the the temporary baseball uh, facility sort of thing, I think that'd be a neat one. And what a backdrop that would be too. Mm, for sure. It'd be cool. So, you know, we, uh, again, we have ideas and if anybody is listening who needs ideas from us, uh, podcast at MILB.com. Okay. Here is our, uh, topic du jour today. The Pensacola blue Wahoos have a thing coming up. Uh, Ben, I just got to let you explain it. Well, well, tell us about Crabzilla, the burgeoning legend of Crabzilla. Yeah. Um, the Pensacola blue Wahoos offer a concession item called the Crabzilla, uh, which, looks about like what you'd probably um, you know think a crabzilla sandwich would look like uh, huge huge amounts of crab and um, you know cost $25 and uh, soft shell crab dash of pork belly just a dash a yeah. dash of pork <laughs> belly uh, parmesan crab macaroni and cheese uh, fried shrimp hush puppies lettuce and tomato uh, so the crabzilla is an over-the-top attention-getting ballpark food item that the Blue Wahoos have done pretty well with um, kind of took on a cult life of its own at the ballpark, this massive seafood sandwich. So the Blue Wahoos thinking, well, how do we uh, you know, capitalize on this? On Wednesday, August 11th, they had the Festival of Crabzilla in which they celebrated this ballpark sandwich. But not only that, they dressed up in Crabzilla, Crabzilla uniforms, which they deemed to be the ugliest uniforms in baseball history uh, featuring most notably um, a crab on the butt of the pants and those crab eyes looking back at you from the butt of a player's pants. Uh, these orange, I guess you call it an orange, a dark burnt orange head to toe uniform with them crab crab's little logo on the butt. So uh, we're going to talk to uh, some Pensacola blue wahoos, principals, including the chef who invented the sandwich and uh, the team president, Travis Wilson and Jonathan Griffith, respectively, and uh, hear a lot more about Crabzilla. Here on the show before the show podcast, myself, Ben Hill, Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra, we are joined by two very special guests, Pensacola Blue Wahoo's president, Jonathan Griffith, and Pensacola Blue Wahoo's executive chef, Chef Travis Wilson. And uh, they are both here to talk about the Crabzilla, a concession item turned more than a concession item, to put it mildly. Uh, the team on Wednesday evening had their first festival of Crabzilla, wore Crabzilla-themed uniforms they called the ugliest in baseball. But first, let's start with all how this all began as literally a concession item created by Chef Travis. Can you tell us about the, the origin story of the Crabzilla? The true origin of the Crabzilla was back in 2012. We created a sandwich called the Battleship, which was similar to the Crabzilla, but a bigger version. 
And so when I came back to the Wahoos in 2019, during a, a front office meeting right, right during the All-Star break, John issued me a challenge to try and come up with something man versus food, like just over the top to bring us back from for the second half and get everybody excited. And so I kind of thought back about the battleship and how anything with soft shell crab is just a showstopper because it's just so ornate and like just catches your eye no matter what you do. And then I know John's a big fan of crab. So I said, let's just take it over the top and do crab four different ways and then just really emphasize the crab. And so we kind of played around with it and came up with it and it just uh, caught fire from there. Yeah. And you, how many would you say, uh, how many crabzillas would you say you uh, sell at the ballpark on any given day? On a, on a decent day, we'll sell about eight to 10, but last night we sold 53. <laughs> During the festival of crabzilla. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a big ticket item, $25. I'm sure it can feed a lot more than, than one person to, to say the least. Uh, and what are, what are the ingredient lists for everyone who uh, is trying to visualize this in their mind? Um, how is the crabzilla constructed? All right. So from top to bottom on the bottom bun, you got a crab tartar sauce, which has lump crab in it and, you know, some pickles and all that stuff. Then you got lettuce, tomato, some bacon, a gigantic soft shell crab that's been fried to GBD, golden brown and delicious. And then you top that with our Parmesan crab mac and cheese, three fried shrimp. Then you put the top bun of the brioche. We hit it with a skewer and finish that with a crab hush puppy. And then on the side, there are some crab seasoned fries. So it is a, uh, it's a monstrosity in a good way. Can we have this overnighted slash just like instantly transported to my desk right now? My ma- it's like, this is like a Pavlovian thing. I'm like, my mouth is actually watering now. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> but now not only is it a, just a concession item, it is now a team identity. There's Crabzilla logos and uniforms and you guys wore them on the field uh, on Wednesday. Uh, very proud of how ugly they are. It seems so, Jonathan, can you take us through how the Crabzilla went from concession to uniform? Well, you know, with, with the Crabzilla, we won the uh, Ballpark Digest Award. And, you know, it was like for best concession item. We're like, you know, how do we celebrate that? Because, you know, it's like great. You can check a box to say that you got something like that. And we were like, you know what? Let's come up. How cool would a logo be? And we worked with Brandios and came up with the kind of what the logo would look like and kind of made some shirts and some hats at first. And that's originally where it was going to end and literally I'm having the hat and I'm like, Hmm, how can we make this a uniform and make a whole day out of this? And I literally took the hat and started like dancing around with it. I was like, wouldn't it be funny to see that go across the field? How could we do that? And I'm like, Oh, put it on the back of the players. And I was like, no, not their back. Let's put it where the legs, you can literally see the legs go. And so, you know, I went to our um, merchandise, uh, Anastriano and, said, Hey, is this possible? And she looked at me like, yeah, right, John, that's cool. And I'm like, no, I'm being serious. Like and I would take the hat and went around the office and literally went to four or five different uh, offices and, you know, did it and kind of, and they started laughing. And I'm like, I think this will work. I mean, if that's the reaction we're getting here and it kind of, are you serious? And um, we went to Wilson and did the same thing. And they asked the exact same thing. Are you serious? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, yeah, no, we really want a crab to run across the field. And so um, we were able to get them done. You know, we went through probably five or six different versions to finally get to where we were um, and made them just oddly enough to get people excited. So um, it was really a 
it was a great thing. You know, we had so many new people come to the ballpark last night and they said that they had never been to a game, but they had heard about this Crabzilla and they wanted to get the experience. And Travis, we even had one guy order seven Crabzillas last night. Um, one, one dude. And uh, hopefully he was sharing with friends, but um, that was <laughs> they actually had to go run to the seafood store. Uh, Joe Patty's right down the street here and go get more crabs and more everything else because we weren't expecting quite that large of an order. So it was crazy. That's insane. Well, I want to go back to what you were saying in terms of there were like five or six different versions that you guys were considering. Was it what like was it across a wide range of options? Was it really, really crazy on one end and really, really conservative on another? Or were you trying to keep pushing it to get crazier and crazier and crazier? Because like you guys said, you wanted it to be the ugliest uniform in baseball. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it was more making it really look like a crab running across the field, honestly, you know, because at first it was kind of, you know, the traditional when you do a jersey, you know, the jersey type thing, it's on the jersey, right? So they kept like lowering it down the jersey and we're like, oh, that's still not getting to that point. And we're like, if we put the eyes literally across, you know, their backside <laughs> and say that's where the start of it is and go legs down, now you can kind of get that, you know, feel for it. And so, um, and once they realized, like, we're talking about the actual pants, not jersey, because you got to tuck the jersey in and um, getting to that point. I, I think it was just a, a new concept. I, you know, we hadn't seen anybody really do that. And so it was one that we were just trying to trying to stretch the imagination a little bit and see what we could what we could do. And I think we did a pretty decent job of that. Yeah, and what was the reaction from the players? Because they're the ones who have to actually wear these things. <laughs> you know, that, we had a, my biggest concern with this is that it's yeah. always like the team comes up with it. It's great. But at the end of the day, it's still players who have to wear it. So what was the reaction from the guys? We'll put it this way. We've never hit that many home runs in a game. So I'm thinking we win again on <laughs> that side. But it was, it was a split thing. You know, there were some guys like, are you kidding me right now? And then you had other guys that embraced it, you know, like, hey, let's go with this, man. This is funny. Ha, 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 kind of thing. And um, and really embraced it. But like I said, we had three home runs in the first inning last night. Um, I, we, I think we had four or five total last night, one seven to two. So we had a good game. Um, I'm not sure if we shouldn't uh, ask for uh, those fans that bought them to bring them back so we can win and get more <laughs> games that way. So. <laughs> And in terms of how you marketed this uh, Crabzilla identity in the uniforms, I mean, your own press release said they were the ugliest uniforms of all time. Jonathan, I think you were quoted in the press release saying uh, they make you want to vomit, something to that effect. <laughs> um, but you've put a lot of time into them and clearly you're proud of them. I mean, do you think on a certain level they're beautiful? You know, I, I do. I honestly, I love them. Me personally, I do love them. Um, it's one that they're so bad that they're good type of reaction. That's what a lot of people said. You know, they're, it's like you've taken it to the level of like, they're so bad that you still kind of want one, you know I mean? And the fact is that everybody last night who did the auction and we actually have the auction still going live right now, you actually get the Jersey and the pants. So you get a full <laughs> uniform out of this auction and be able to go one, one older lady, she's probably about 70 said, all right, I got my pajamas now <laughs> when she won her bid. So, you know, it's going to be one of those things that I even saw people asking for Halloween costumes. And I actually have a buddy getting married in uh, Maryland uh, this September. And he goes, Hey, are you going to bring those up for the groomsmen? And I was like, Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. And chef, um, I think it's safe to say this is the first time one of your creations has been turned into a uniform and its own standalone identity. What is your reaction to seeing a, a concession item you created take on literally this, this whole life of its own? 
you know, I like to think of it. Uh, I have three kids. I like to think of it as my fourth kid and just watch, <laughs> just watching it grow and into what it's become. It's actually really cool just to think about historically, like they were the Crabzillas for one night based off of idea that came to fruition and just, I don't know. It's just really cool to people embrace it the way they have and, being and such a, just being such a different thing. Juice? Sorry. No, you're Where good. Where are your you're creative good. juices right now? Like wh- when that when that happens and things are going that successfully, and you see this turned into this, and like you said, you were running out to get more crab last night. Wh- have you gone back to the dry- drawing board trying to come up with a new concoction? You know, every day I wake up thinking about how am I going to top the crabzilla, which I don't know if it's possible, but yeah, I mean, every day it's like, man, what can we do? Because like, once you get a taste of something so cool. Like you want it again, you know, like that feeling of, man, can we create something else that could possibly become a logo for the team for one night kind of thing? Well, I never thought it would happen. And one of the unique things that Chef does as well, which we're pretty unique in, is every homestand, Chef comes up with a new item. So like right now we have the gump dump because we're playing Montgomery. And so it is a, it is a, you know, a big old biscuit with a, a hamburger on it, cheese, sausage, and all this other Creole, all type of stuff. And so it's one that every week chef comes up with something special. And so eventually I think we're going to hit on another one. I'm sure with this creativity. Yeah. It seems pretty likely that down the line there, there will be something else, but for now Crabzilla is King, but can you see this coming back in 2022 and beyond? Have you talked about ways to uh, expand upon what you've already done? You know, we haven't talked about bringing Crabzilla back as far as another day at the ballpark. You know, next year will be our 10th year anniversary. So we are coming up with you know new ideas and things that we're going to do for year 10. Um, you know, we may bring back all the old, you know, and Crabzilla would be a year old, but still old <laughs> at that point. Uh-huh. In time. So, you know, we're, we're kind of going to do the best of the 10 years. So after uh, this day, I'm not sure how we could not bring Crabzilla back for that for sure. All right. Well, we are looking forward to seeing what happens next in the world's uh, in the world of Blue Wahoo's concessions in general <laughs> and Crabzilla specifically. It's been quite a journey so far. So uh, appreciate both of you coming on the show. Jonathan Griffith, the president of the Pensacola Blue Wahoo's and executive chef Travis Wilson. Visionaries both. And uh, <laughs> thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Huge thanks to the Pensacola Blue Wahoos slash Crabzillas slash Mullets slash, uh, you know, the the alternate identities are, are plentiful and are all impressive in Pensacola. And a big thanks to uh, to the Blue Wahoos for coming on and tell us, uh, telling us about the, the legend of Crabzilla. And that leads us into three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show, where we debate and discuss three burning topics across minor league baseball. And we're kicking things off with the new... Top overall prospect in all of baseball after the graduation of Wander Franco from that list uh, for the Tampa Bay Rays. Adley Rutschman, the catching prospect in the Baltimore Orioles organization, is now the number one prospect in baseball and and is a fairly new member of the AAA Norfolk Tides. I talked to him a couple of nights ago after his first game in Norfolk when he went two for four with a double and an RBI. And also, oh, by the way, uh, caught a one-hit shutout for the Tides. Pretty impressive debut. Um, Sam, for Adley Rutschman making this jump, he is now on the doorstep of Baltimore. Baltimore, uh, when he called, I said, man, AAA is pretty easy. I guess we'll see you in Baltimore soon. And he laughed and he was like, yeah, man, if only it was that simple with baseball. <laughs> um, but very impressive start to continue a very impressive year. 
Yeah. I mean, th- this was a long time coming, this promotion. Uh, let's be honest. Like, I feel like we were sharing what there are six games a week. We were sharing Adley highlights like three or four times a week, just because he was doing something almost every night at the ballpark. And there's a reason why he's the number one overall prospect in the game now, now that Juan Franco has graduated. And it's because he just does everything really well, maybe outside of running. He's not the greatest runner in the world, but he's a very good defensive catcher. Anybody you talk to who throws to him, loves throwing to him. He's a great receiver, got a pretty good arm back there, uh, but he can also hit and he can hit for legit power. Uh, he had 18 home runs in 80 games. He controls the strike zone. Well, he had a near even 57 to 55 strikeout to walk ratio, which helped him post a 392 on base percentage. I mean, he was doing everything at Bowie that he really should have been. I thought this move was going to be coming in July, if not even a little earlier. Like, I don't, I don't know how much he really had to prove being a number one overall pick, being somebody with a ton of college pedigree. Uh, he was very, very good at Oregon State. He should have been a quick mover. Seemed to take all the boxes in the first half at Bowie. They kept him there a little bit longer. Part of me thinks that may have been to work with a Grayson Rodriguez for longer, a D.L. Hall for a little bit longer. I know D.L. Hall has been dealing with injuries, but uh, they have a lot of talent at that Bowie site. And that's probably going to be the future of Orioles baseball is, is that Bay Sox group. So you keep Rutschman with them. They, they get to know each other very well. Um, they become closer teammates that by the time they do all make the majors probably roughly around the same time, there won't be that much of a transition from a teammate perspective. So I understand that to some degree, but at the the other side, you need Rutschman to be challenged. I mean, he's not going to get better if he's hitting three homers a week uh, with a couple of doubles and, you know, walking more than he struck out, which again, he was doing that roughly even at some point, but I'm sure that the scales were going to tip the other way, the more he saw double a pitching, um, so now he's going to get that challenge at AAA. I'm not expecting a major league debut to come this year uh, just because this AAA debut is, is coming a little late in the game with about six weeks left in the season. Uh, but, and especially because the Orioles don't need Rutschman, they're not trying to play for anything down the stretch. You could make an argument that if he really tears it up in Norfolk, uh, you would want him to get his feet wet at the top level. I'm always on board with that. I think major league experience can only help guys. They, he would come back in 2022 with some knowledge of the game, uh, but given where the Orioles are right now in the standings and that they don't need Rutschman right now. And, and they'd much rather have him finish strong than potentially finish challenged at the major league level. I understand it. Um, but yeah, I, it, the, it was certainly exciting to see him finally take that step. And, and like you wrote, uh, speaking to him after speaking to him, Tyler, uh, he seems to have taken to AAA extremely well. Anything else stand out from your conversation with him in, in writing that story? You know, he's just such a mature guy. Um, you know, being a, a first overall pick two years ago, uh, the thing that was kind of interesting in that story is I think you you just assume that a guy like that gets to the next level and it's just all business as usual. And, uh, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of nerves and there's nothing else. Um, but for Adley Rushman, he said like, yeah, I mean, you try to keep it business as usual, but it definitely, you know, in the back of your mind that things are different. Um, and that was cool. You know, he's talking about being in a, a new ballpark, feeling what the the area of dirt behind home plate is, getting set with the, the lights. Um, um, 
you know, all of those different things when you enter a new facility and you're playing, uh, you know, from a new dugout and in a new clubhouse. And he also talked a little bit about the only other promotion that he's had in season was two years ago when he went from short season to low A. Uh, and that time around, he said, going from uh, from Aberdeen at that point to Delmarva was like attending a new school. Like he didn't know anybody, um, you know, had just been drafted a couple of months beforehand and you're going into a new situation in kind of an uncomfortable way. He said this year, knowing so many guys, being able to go up to a level where uh, teammates from earlier in the season in Bowie, who are now up in Norfolk, know him, um, that made him a lot more comfortable. Uh, I talked with uh, one of his relievers, uh, Kyle Bradish, who I did not realize this, but not only had he and Kyle Bradish worked together last year in the alt site, this year in spring training and in double A, Kyle also told me they pitched and and caught together. They worked uh, as battery mates in the Cape Cod League back when they were in college and to be with somebody who obviously knows you that well as a catcher it was neat listening to those two describe how much the other guy had grown since they last worked together 10 12 weeks ago when they were in buoy uh together when kyle was there at the start of the season um and you know adley rushman just really does seem like the whole package we talked to him obviously last year on the podcast and had a lengthy conversation with him and uh it just seems as though he continues to grow in every way that you would expect um as a, a top prospect but also in ways that are still extremely impressive uh so it's you know it seems full steam ahead for for orioles fans to continue being as excited as possible for adley rutchman and now he's knocking on the door which is uh is very cool in baltimore so that brings us to strike two which uh is a, a fun conversation for this point of the year sam for breakout prospects in 2021 who has been your favorite story this year and why yeah, I mean, there's there's so many different ways we could kind of go with this. There are some names that we knew coming in who have outperformed what what was expected of them. There are some like I know I, I'm a big fan of Francisco Alvarez, who I think has done tremendous work this year in the Mets system. We always thought was good and has really kicked it up a notch to probably be the number two catching prospect in baseball behind Adley Rutschman. But one I want to highlight because as we're doing our top 100 re rank uh, for MLB Pipeline and his name keeps coming up as somebody who, you know, maybe we could push even higher or, uh, you know, it, anybody you talk to is very high on this guy is Anthony Volpe of the New York Yankees system. Um, and, and it's not like he's my favorite breakout prospect because of a backstory or anything. He was a first round pick uh, coming out of New Jersey. He was actually teammates with Jack Leiter at the Del Barton school in Morristown, New Jersey. So it, when the Yankees took him, it felt like kind of taking a local kid. He, he is a shortstop. Um, so there is some value there, like developing him. Um, he was considered an above average bat an above average fielder, maybe nothing plus necessarily a decent runner. And this year he's really taken off offensively to the point where he's one of the best offensive shortstops in all of minor league baseball. Uh, just going through his line, he's hitting 306 with a 441 on base percentage and slugging 616. This isn't over some small sample. This is over 78 games. He's got 18 homers, 26 stolen bases, checking every single offensive box that there is to check here. Uh, and he's doing this at both low A Tampa, where, which is where he started the season. And for all of you who know, low A Southeast is normally the former FSL is normally not an easy place uh, for hitters to hit. Tampa is a little bit more of a bandbox than is typical of stadiums in the Sunshine State. But still hitting 12 homers and slugging 623 down there is going to 
be special no matter what. And he's carried that to high A Hudson Valley, where once again, he is slugging above 600. He's got six homers in 24 games. Uh, he's batting above 300 again. He's at 316 as we're speaking right now. It, his offensive growth has been really special. And now it, we're getting to the point where he might be the top prospect in that Yankee system. We're still having discussions about that, where he's going to end up being placed amongst the Yankees. But talk about somebody who else was in that system was Jason Dominguez, one of the most hype prospects we've had in years in terms of somebody we hadn't seen yet at a full season level. Anthony Volpe may have passed him. At, at least it's very neck and neck uh, because of what he can do offensively. So I, I think he he's definitely needs to be at the top of the list in terms of best breakout stars of the year. Um, somebody we weren't really talking about as a top 100 candidate to begin now is at that level, if not even much, much higher. Uh, but there are so many other ones we could go through. Noel V. Marte, I think, has been really special. He's played him his way into top 20 consideration in, in that Mariner system. Um, Alvarez, I already mentioned. Jordan Walker in the St. Louis Cardinals system uh, has been posting really special exit velocities all year. Um, he's kind of right there with Norlin Gorman in my eyes for like best power hitter in that card system, which isn't something I wouldn't have envisioned saying at the beginning of the year. Walker's always been power over hit. I get that. But Gorman is really special with the power bat and Walker may have passed him just because of how much he's massacring balls. So it's uh, it's been pretty special to get back to looking at breakout prospects and get to a place where guys can break out and it's not happening behind closed doors anymore. How do you feel about Griffin Conine? He's reached 30 homers. Um, he had 29 in his minor league career coming into this season, albeit you know over 137 games, I guess. But in 86 games this year, he's got 30 homers. The average isn't much. Um, he's a 236 hitter as of today, but he reaches at a 355 rate, and that slugging percentage is 569 this season. He's a number 16 prospect right now in the Marlins organization. Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing about Griffin Conine is he's been neck and neck with MJ Melendez, who is somebody yeah. I actually I should have mentioned there. Um, as somebody who is doing the Royals list, the Royals are very high on it. MJ Melendez and his breakout this year with the, the power bat has been really special. Um, Melendez is a really, really good catcher. We always knew that, but he was hitting in the one hundreds two years ago at high a and is now getting, he's going to end the year with 30 plus home runs uh, between double a and triple a. Um, so there, that race between Conine and, and Melendez is going to be really special. I know we talked about it a couple weeks ago, uh, but yeah, Conine is certainly putting it, his his name on the map, especially as the son of, you know, former Mr. Marlin himself. Well, that brings us to our final strike for this week's three strikes, which is kind of uh, connected, talking about breakout prospects and all of that. Uh, MLB Pipeline's prospect re-ranks, mid-season prospect re-ranks coming to the uh, the MLB Pipeline site here very shortly. Sam obviously taking one of the lead roles in that. Sam, how do we evaluate and look at prospect pro- progression uh, at this point of a season, especially when it comes to evaluating where guys kind of fit into their systems? Yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating for this year because – we didn't get any prospect performance unless it was on the major league side in 2020. And a lot of times that led to graduations. And especially when we're talking about our midseason re-rank here, if guys were in the majors last year, they probably graduated this year. There are some exceptions to that, of course, and thinking of immediately of Joey Bart, for example, but still uh, for the most part, it we were basing it off what they've done this year. And for a lot of these guys, we haven't seen them ourselves since 2019. So it's how far have you come? What are you doing differently? We, we talked just recently about MJ Melendez, somebody, again, who was sitting in the 100s. He really needed to improve, and he's done that. He's basically turned his offensive performance around. Um, so it 
it's it's been interesting to follow this year because so much of our preseason rankings were based off of what we had heard versus what we had seen. And now that's tipping the other direction. You don't want to base too much off of three months of performance like anything. Prospect rankings are about projection going forward, who we think is most likely to impact a major league roster someday. But the fact that this recent data is basically the best we have going back now two years, um, there is a little bit more to lean on this year. And you might be looking at the first half more than you would in a normal year, more than we would have in 2019 or, or 2018. So it's been really fascinating to follow that. Um, you also have to take some grains of salt, of course, because some of these guys didn't play much, if at all, in 2020. They may not even been at Instructs or at the alternate site. Um, they, they could have been coming off injuries. They could have been working out at home for much of the year. Um, so we may not even gotten that strong of a report off of them uh, from 2019 and or from 2020 rather. And they may have started out rusty this year, just getting back into game action. Uh, it certainly sounds like, especially at the lower levels, the gameplay was really rusty as guys were trying to find themselves both offensively, defensively on the mound, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now as we work deeper into the year, maybe guys stuff is falling off a little bit as they work deeper and deeper into innings and um, start to hit those innings limits. Um, so there's just so much more that goes into it this year than really ever before. But I do think we are leaning on 2021 performance more than we would have in a typical season, just because really this is all we have going back the last two years. And that'll do it for three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. We're back to wrap it up next. Miners this week as the pickle has fallen off my ham sandwich. But, as you'll recall from last time, this is the question for next time. Which of these adorable whittle clubs was born unto a bygone miner's circuit? A. The Eau Claire Fawns. B. The Yakutat Pups. C. The Elgin Kittens. Want to know the answer? Cuddle up with an encyclopedia. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show, MILB.TV, where you can catch all of the top talent of minor league baseball across the final, what, six, eight weeks now of the minor league season uh, as we're coming kind of down to the wire. Sam, what are you watching on Milb TV this week? Yeah, I mean, I got my eye, my eye on Portland at Somerset. Tristan Cassis uh, is just coming back from the Olympics. We didn't even really talk about the Olympics. We previewed the Olympics beforehand. Uh, the United States of America coming in, Second place, so getting silver medals against Japan. Uh, and the Dominican Republic, led by Julio Rodriguez, getting bronze. So it was a pretty good Olympics, I feel like, overall for prospects. But yeah. Cass is uh, coming up. He was one of the best power hitters in that USA lineup that was filled with some names you probably know back home. Uh, you know, Todd Frazier immediately comes to mind and, and some other veterans. But he looked like somebody who hasn't played at double A. He, he fit in pretty well in that veteran lineup. So Cass is back. Um, I, I expect he's going to be start start to play pretty soon, but Portland is playing at Somerset, so there's a little bit of a Red Sox-Yankees vibe going on there as well. Uh, try to catch him if you can. I wouldn't be surprised if he's in AAA Worcester at some point pretty soon. Uh, maybe he'll be there pretty quickly, actually, uh, coming off that performance, but 
uh, yeah, Cassis is, is definitely one to watch in the Red Sox system right now. Uh, and coming off that Olympics, you know, he's going to be jazzed. So catch him while you can. Uh, Tyler, what do you got your eye on? Yeah, I'm turning to high A in the Cincinnati Reds organization where 17th overall pick, uh, first round selection. Matt McLean is now a member of that roster out of UCLA. Uh, he made his high A debut, went four for five, was a triple away from the cycle, belted a homer, uh, drove in five runs for his team at Lansing. Dayton will be at Lansing uh, for the remainder of this weekend. Then they return home to Lake County next week uh, for a six-game homestand from Tuesday through Sunday. So you can catch those games on MILB.TV and a pretty fun little lineup there in Dayton now. So uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Big thanks to our guests from Pensacola. And all of you for tuning in, you can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykstra, MILB. I am at Tyler Mon. And for Sam, I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Hey.